0: All right, beautiful people. I want to thank you for joining me here. New Bay Brown, your host at Prison Focus Radio on KPOO San Francisco 89.5. We are going to spend the next hour uh, dedicating um, this time and our incredible joy to hear that Sundiata Akoli will finally be released after almost 50 years. Um you know, he is finally coming home and, um, according to news, one nation will be spending his remaining days with his daughter and loved ones, thankfully, because the New Jersey Supreme Court released its decision Tuesday morning, granting, um, Sundiata's bid for freedom. Mind you, this is the power of the people. They do not want this person out. He has been in for almost 50 years. He is 85 years old. Um, so setting aside any political concerns underlying Acoli's case, the state Supreme Court determined the parole board's continued denial was, quote, not supported by substantial evidence in the record or by a reasonable weighing of the relevant factors in the, um, in NJAC, uh, 10A71-311B that govern parole, unquote, um, even under the most, it's the quote continues, even under the most deferential standard of review, the board has failed to prove by a preponderance of evidence that there is a substantial likelihood that if released on parole, mind you, he's 85, Akoli uh, will commit a crime, unquote. Read the decision. Akoli must be released because the statutory standards for granting parole have been met without regard to extraneous factors like sympathy or passion. public opinion, unquote. Advocates were pleased with the court's decision. Well, uh, again, power of the people and uh, to uh, uh, Sophia uh, Elijah, the civil rights attorney, and um, all of those, all of the people who have been advocating for Sundiata Akoli's release for decades now. Um, he never should have been in for almost 50 years, and many of our, as we know, our freedom fighters, our uh, former and or as they are now rightfully calling themselves veteran Black Panther Party uh, for self-defense members as well as BLA members um, um, have been uh, caged well beyond uh Anything reasonable, so this is the power of the people who have gotten him home. We know that there are forces that still do not want him home and this this just happens at this Supreme Court at this point now that Sundiata is eighty five years old and almost fifty years in prison. I guess they can you know grant us grant us this, but um we do want to be clear about. Uh, the fight that is going to come to try to keep him inside. Already, the governor and the uh, and the attorney general of the state of New Jersey um, decry this this decision by the courts and uh, still want to um, keep Sundiata Kolé and other freedom fighters uh, who I- inside for the rest of their lives because of a law that was passed actually um, after Sundiata Kolé uh, was captured by the state, um, saying that anyone that kills a police officer, an an on-duty police officer, uh, will be uh, sent to prison for life. What a crock of genocidal shit. So we are happy that he is coming home, um, but pay attention to the fight that will ensue, of course, and the delays uh, that will come of that, but we expect him to be home and the rest of this hour will be dedicated to him. All right, here we go. All right, we are going to start with a poem by Asada Shakur that was read by Sundiata Kohli in the year of 2018. It's called Affirmation.
1: Affirmation by Asada Shakur. I believe in living. I believe in the spectrum of better days and Gama people. I believe in sunshine. Aha. Uh-huh in windmills, in waterfalls, tricycles, and rocket chairs. And I believe that seeds grow into sprouts, and that sprouts grow into trees. I believe in the magic of the hands, and in the wisdom of the eyes. I believe in rain and tears, and in the blood of infinity. I believe in life. I have seen the death parade march through the torso of the earth, sculpting mud bodies in this path. I've seen the destruction of daylight and seen blood-thirsty maggots prayed to and saluted. I've seen the kind become the blind and the blind become the band in one easy lesson. I've walked on cut glass. I've eaten crow and blunderbread and breathed the stench of indifference. I have been locked by the lawless, handcuffed by the haters, gagged by the greedy. And if I know anything at all, it's that a wall is just a wall and nothing more at all. It can be broken down. I believe in living. I believe in birth. I believe in the sweat of love. And in the fire of truth. And I believe that a lost ship steered by tired seasick sailors can still be guided home to port. I thank you.
0: All right. I am going to be reading a couple of articles um, out of the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper to give those of you who may not know uh, very much about Sundiata Akoli, um being the political prisoner that he is, because in this country, apparently we don't have political prisoners um, or even prisoners of war. So uh, we know that that is a myth and that is a lie. Um, and a a perpetual lie actually about the history of this country. Again, want to give a shout out to the power of the people because uh, Sundiata Akoli's imminent release is because of that overstanding for people that did not buy into the narrative and continue to work hard to make sure that the rest of us again, had an overstanding of what is taking place in this country. And I salute all of you. Um, and um, big shout-out to the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper for um, chronicling um, the, the, the campaign to free Sundiata Akholi and giving voice to um, not only political prisoners, but the prisoner class in general. Um it's it quite unusual and I guess I will say right here also a uh, big shout out to uh KPOO San Francisco for this radio station for providing this hour. Um I know very few places where um a radio station allows for or just honors, <laughs> you know, um an hour that is devoted to the issues of our modern day enslaved class called prisoners in this country. So the first article is Sundiata Akoli, political prisoner for 39 years, wins appeal and is up for parole again. Now, mind you, this is 10 years ago. This article was written on April 13th, 2012, and he was up for parole even then. He is now 85. Okay. Attorney Bruce Afrons appeal of Sundiata Kolie's parole denial and 10-year hit resulted in the New Jersey Appellate Court's remand to the New Jersey Parole Board that its 10-year hit be cut to 3 years. It was done, and Sundiata has become immediately eligible for a parole hearing again. The appellate court must still rule on Sundiata's 2010 denial of parole, but meanwhile, he's preparing to go before the parole board again for his newly won 2012 parole hearing. In that regard, he would greatly appreciate any and all letters sent to the parole board urging that he be released." Um, I'm just going to take a break here for a second. I, Again, the reason that I am reading this letter, um, because it's not... Sundiata Akoli's imminent release in 2022 uh, is representative of something that is going on and has been going on for centuries and, and, and very concertedly and, um, and in this very concrete and compact way over these past decades to keep our people unfree or dead. And so I want his release, because we have the information about what he went, was going through just 10 years ago. He should never have been um, uh, convicted and sent to prison. So um, this is why I'm reading this, because I think an historical uh, perspective is important. All right, back to the article. Sundiata is 75 years of age and has been in prison 39 years, resulting from a stop of his car by state troopers on the New Jersey Turnpike in 1973, which erupted in gunfire that resulted in the death of his passenger, Zaid Shakur, and a state trooper, Werner Forster. The other passenger, Asada Shakur, was critically wounded and captured on the scene where another trooper, James Harper, was also wounded. Sundiata was wounded at the scene, captured in the woods 40 hours later, and subsequently sentenced to life in New Jersey State Prison. Sundiata is now the longest-held prisoner in New Jersey's history of similar convictions— He has maintained an outstanding record in prison and has had only a few minor disciplinary reports over the past 30 years and none during the last 16 years. He's also maintained an excellent work and scholastic record, well he is a mathematician, and has always been a positive influence in prison, particularly in mentoring prisoners toward becoming crime-free benefactors to the community upon return to society and thereby break their cycle of recidivism. Sundiata is a 75-year-old grandfather who has long been rehabilitated, has long satisfied all requirements for parole, and has no or little likelihood of committing another crime, which is the main criterion for parole in New Jersey. Sundiata is an old man in declining health who wishes to live out the rest of his days in peace, tending his grandchildren. Send letters urging the board that 39 years is enough. Release Sundiata Akoli. His New Jersey prison number is, I don't need to read that, and his federal prison number, wow, uh, okay, state and federal. Address letters, and so there's there's all the information um, for that, and then... Uh, for how to be in touch with him. Um, Thank you for your support. Please keep in touch with Sundiata Akoli at the Sundiata Akoli Freedom page to stay abreast of Sundiata's parole situation and additional ways you can express support and solidarity with his parole effort. Sundiata and his Freedom Campaign, SAFC, Um, Sundiata and his freedom campaign, send their sincerest condolences to the family and comrades of Christian Gomez, the prisoner who died in the California prisoner hunger strike. And we send our warmest shout out of solidarity and strength to all those participating in or supporting the California prisoners hunger strike. Who is Sundiata Akoli? Sundiata Akholi, a new African political prisoner of war, mathematician, and computer analyst, was born January 14, 1937, in Decatur, Texas, and raised in Vernon, Texas. He graduated from Prairie View A&M College of Texas in 1956 with a B.S. in mathematics and, for the next 13 years, worked for various computer-oriented firms, mostly in the New York area. During the summer of 1964, he did voter registration work in Mississippi. There's where he probably ran into problems. Uh, in 1968, oh, don't forget. I'm sorry, I'm breaking here because it's just amazing to me to listen to when we start going into who Sundiata Coley was, um, and I believe he was Clark Squire at that time. I don't think he was um, Sundiata at that when he uh, was going to school. Um, but But the fact that he was an educated black man, um, you know, we're talking about in, uh so he was born in, the, so he's an educated black man in 1956, he graduates from a College of Texas in mathematics, right, and for the next 13 years, you know, working as a computer, or in computer-oriented firms, like, you know, that's not what... Um, you know that's not what is by that is not what is in the design uh for uh you know according to this this um this government in this country and when he's and, you know, here he is in the 60s and um, went in to do registration work. Uh, yeah, he was a, he was an immediate target as soon as he, you know, was going to to college. Um, in 1968, he joined the Harlem Black Panther Party and did community work around issues of schools, housing, jobs, childcare, drugs and police brutality. Another problem. In 1969, he and 13 others were arrested in the Panther 21 conspiracy case. He was held in jail without bail Mm -hmm. and on trial for two years before being acquitted. Mm -hmm. Um, These are all uh, violations of due process, along with all other defendants by a jury deliberating less than two hours. So upon release, FBI intimidation of potential employers shut off all employment possibilities in the computer profession and stepped up Cointel. Pro harassment, surveillance, and provocations soon drove him underground. Wow. So, FBI intimidation of potential employers shut off all employment possibilities in the computer profession and stepped up COINTEL. Pro harassment, surveillance, and pro- provocations soon drove him underground. This is the FBI. So, again, any of you that are under any illusion that, um, that our political prisoners are the criminals and, that, um, and why prison exists and that it's not modern-day slavery, um, I, I hope, again, that the idea of putting out this information is to, to um, you know, upset and shake up uh, your perception of things because the state is designed to protect the people in power, and intelligent vocal um, educated about their history self determined uh freedom loving black people um counters everything that this this country has been designed um to uh, do to keep black people in their place I mean the FBI is a l- unlawful corrupt organization they are the gang they are the criminal. They are the criminals. In 1973, while driving the New Jersey Turnpike, he and his comrades were ambushed by New Jersey State Troopers. One companion, Zaid Shakur, was killed. Another companion, Asada Shakur, was wounded and captured. One State Trooper was killed and another wounded. And Sundiata was captured days later. After a highly sensationalized, this means media, um, media blitz, media lies. I'm not coming up with the word and pre- prejudicial trial. He was convicted of the death of state trooper and was sentenced to Trenton State Prison for life plus 30 years consecutive. Upon entering TSP, Trenton State Prison, he was subsequently confined to a new and specially created management control unit solely solely because of his political background. He remained in MCU almost five years, let out of the cell only 10 minutes a day for showers and two hours twice a week for recreation management control unit that is a an extreme form of of solitary confinement it is meant these are the kinds of things that are meant to uh mind control in september of 1979 the international jurist interviewed Sundiata, and subsequently declared him a political prisoner. A few days later, prison officials secretly transferred him during the middle of the night to the federal prison system and put him en route to the infamous federal concentration camp at Marion, Illinois, which is where all of this mind-control, breaking kind of solitary confinement was born. Although he had no federal charges or sentences, and this is how they can just Human traffic people, this goes to also tell you why we say that modern day slavery exists and it is legal within the prison system. They have just human trafficked Sundiata Akoli um, and it is legal. Or it doesn't matter if it's not legal because this is a corrupt system. Marion is one of the highest security prisons in the U.S., also one of the harshest, and there Sundiata was locked down 23 hours a day. In July 1987, he was transferred to the federal penitentiary at Leavenworth, Kansas. In the fall of 1992, Sundiata became eligible for parole. He was not permitted to attend his own parole hearing and was only allowed to participate via telephone from USP Leavenworth. Despite an excellent prison work, academic, and disciplinary record, despite numerous job offers in the computer profession, and despite thousands of letters on his behalf, Sundiata was denied parole. Instead, At the conclusion of a 20-minute telephone hearing, he was given a 20-year hit, the longest hit in New Jersey history, which dictates that he must do at least 12 more years before coming up for parole again. The parole board's stated reason for the 20-year hit was Sundiata's membership in the Black Panther Party and the Black Liberation Army prior to his arrest why does i'm going to go off here why does this have anything to do with his confinement he is supposed to be if, if 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 the punishment is losing your freedom what what does any of this have to do with um the parole denial but again this is an illegitimate system the parole boards all over this country in every state are corrupt. They are designed to keep our people in a slave-like condition, or, or just say, unfree. The receipt of hundreds of free Sundiata form letters that characterized him as a new African prisoner of war, and the feeling that the punitive aspects of his sentence had not been satisfied and that rehabilitation was not sufficiently achieved." Is what the poll, parole board's uh, stated reason for 20-year denial. The real reason for the 20-year hit is to attempt to force Sundiata to renounce his political beliefs and to proclaim to the world that he was wrong to struggle for the liberation of his people. Absolutely. Here are some words from Masada Shakur which are a part of this article. I want so much for Sundiata to know how much he is loved and respected. I want him to know how much he is appreciated by revolutionaries all over the world. I want Sundiata to know how much he is cherished by African people, not only in the Americas, but all over the diaspora. I want him to know how much we admire his strength, his courage, his kindness and compassion. Sundiata loves freedom, and we must struggle for the life and freedom of Sundiata and. Again, an amazing and big shout out to all of the people who did that very thing, struggled for the freedom and the life of Sundiata Akoli, who is, will be coming home soon. Okay, and there was a YouTube video that was also included in this article. Obviously, you will not be able to hear uh, see it, but you will be able to hear it, and I will uh, read to you the text that is here that you will not be able to see. Sundiata Akoli is up for parole in February 2010. It's time to bring Sundiata home.
1: Sundiata Akuli is a 72 year old prisoner at FCI Otisville, New York, who's been imprisoned 36 years.
0: Seven reasons Sundiata should be free. One, the recidivism rate for seniors is is almost zero. This is Laura Whitehorn. Um, She is an activist. Because in this country, if we ever want to see any kind of justice, any kind of society built on love, then we have to welcome back the we people who have served many, many years in prison, and will serve that time with dignity and hope in their hearts, and who have never stopped loving the
1: people. Sundiata, um, well, he's a very, very talented guy. He's...
0: And this is the voice of Sophia Elijah, who is the civil rights attorney. Graduated
1: from high school at 16, went on to college, got a bachelor's in science and mathematics back in a time when very few black people were going to college. Then he went and worked um, for NASA. And it's amazing. Um, I, I meet young people all the time. who.
0: This is the voice of Fayemi Shakur, the, the Sundiata Coley, a freedom campaign.
1: Sundiata has actually works with high school students and college students, even while he's in prison, and serves as a mentor to a lot of young people, and provides really uh, progressive um, outlooks on on politics for us. That are he's
0: he's just amazing, and we do adore him.
1: Uh, I believe very firmly.
0: This is Michael Tarif Warren, I'm another lawyer. Should be free, should be free as soon as possible.
1: I think Sunniella so, yeah, uh, should be free uh, because uh, the picture is being painted uh,
0: about This is Asada Shakur's daughter, Kakuya. Kaku Kakuya, excuse me.
1: Those charges um, really don't accurately portray the reality. The reality is um, Sundiata uh, was uh, politically active and uh, sort of addressing the social ills that he saw in in the community. he has been in prison for 36 years, and uh, and during that period of time, he has been a model.
0: Um, And the second reason for his release should be he has been an asset to the community his entire life. Um, This is Joe. He is a youth activist who's speaking now.
1: And his great sacrifices for our people. I cannot apologize for my membership in a party that helped provide free breakfast for school children, legal clinics, health clinics, tenant control of slum housing, community control against drug dealers, and many other aspects of community work. I was particularly impressed with the party's emphasis on self-reliance, a concept that is so commonly used today, used even by the current president of the United States. Today, it is hailed as a good concept. <laughs>
0: Of course, that was Sundiata Coley talking about being a member of the Black Panther Party for self-defense. Um, and um the third reason that is coming up is he has served more time than most convicted of the same crime. The why I that he be free is because he had freed so many youth. when you call- This is Pam Africa. She is an Af- um an activist and she is part of the move. Uh she is part of uh of MOVE, the MOVE organization.
1: Um, when we came to the dance tonight, and whenever you go and you ready for out of home, you see youth disinspired to be right there. How many of you would have asked
0: me as a
1: hero? Youth disinspired to go into their community and educate and bring back
0: youth who have fallen on the wayside. This is the Sundiata for the youth this is Nayoka Acevedo and she is an organizer And she looks like she is also very young so a youth organizer streets of New York and streets of
1: America uh, and bars as well he has educated many brothers during his over 30 years incarcerated he has influenced so many people again, both in and outside of the prison. 72 years old. First of all, the recidivism rate for people his age is virtually zero. He has an opportunity for parole, and it's been denied, and he's just coming up again. Right. What's happening with that? We're preparing now. We're, we're collecting letters, collecting signatures for a petition, um, asking people to you know, make their voices heard and let the, the officials in New Jersey know loud and clear that enough, enough is enough. And it's, it's time for him to come home to his
0: family. Um, oh, and so the, the, the fourth reason is political beliefs are not a basis to deny parole. For our generation, uh, we
1: can't conceive of the type of sacrifices individuals...
0: Um, and that he was a target of um, the COINTELPRO. Like
1: Sonia the selfishness that they gave of themselves.
0: If released, I look forward to a life
1: with my children and grandchildren, who will take me in as I earn a living for as long as I am an able-bodied man. It is important that I make positive contributions to my community, and it is my desire to see them all again beyond these walls. I thank all of my supporters for your love. Sundiata Keita oh,
0: Um, number five, he was a target of government oppression of radicals. It's his daughter, sue He has maintained an infraction-free prison record since 1996, and he has a father and a grandfather.
1: Shit, we just brought here, brought here, misguided and thought here, told was less than outlined in Chalk here. Robert Seth Hayes, say, go, bingo, listen, the,
0: So you can see this, um, video yourself. If you just go to YouTube and, um, look up Sundiata Akoli Freedom Campaign, um, And thankfully, this is now um, history and he will be coming home. But imagine that even at that time, this was, you know, over 13, 14 years ago, and he was still being um, they were fighting his release and the people were fighting for his release. All right, if you are just joining us, this is Prison Focus Radio. I'm your host, Nube Brown, and we are spending the hour uh, focusing on Sundiata Akoli, who will be released uh, very soon here. We don't know when, but we are giving some context on who this political prisoner is. He is a freedom fighter and. He is 85 years old, has been in prison almost 50 years, and so, again, we are giving some context to his imminent release uh, that should be forthcoming. So I'm going to read um, another article from the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper. This is Sundiata Akoli, Ride and Denied. Now, this article was written on July 4th, or posted July 4th, 2016. It is by Sundiata Akoli himself, and Um, This is perfect because uh, the last article that we read in 2012 uh, was about his parole denial. And now, um, and here he is the brief recap of, and then he had a, a winning the appeal to get a parole hearing, and now this is the denial. Here's the background. So again, Sundiata Akoli, Ride and Denied by Sundiata Akoli from the San Francisco Baby National Black newspaper in 2016. This is a brief recap of my parole hearing and denial. Background. Almost two years ago, September 29, 2014, the New Jersey Appellate Court ordered the New Jersey Parole Board to expeditiously set conditions for my parole. The Parole Board appealed the order on grounds that I had not undergone a hearing before the full parole board prior to securing the order for release. The New Jersey Supreme Court reversed the appellate court's order and remanded the case to the full parole board for completion of the administrative process, which, for a convicted murderer like me, requires a full hearing before the parole board prior to securing release from incarceration. The process further requires that the victim be given the opportunity to address the board and to witness the full board's interaction with the incarcerated murderer prior to his or her release. The Ride so, on June 6, 2016, I was transported by van, by van to Trenton, New Jersey for a parole hearing without my attorney present before the, full Jersey New, before the full New Jersey State Parole Board. Upon arrival at the New Jersey State Prison, formerly Trenton State Prison, the driver of the van reported that he had, quote, inadvertently ooh, left my legal valise containing all my legal materials at FCI Cumberland, Maryland. Most importantly, the valise contained my speech, Why I Should Be Paroled, co-written by my dear comrade daughter, Fayemi Shakur, and me, which I planned to deliver deliver before the full board two days hence. I asked the driver to call R&D at FCI Cumberland and have them mail my valise overnight. NJSP immediately mugshot me, Gave me a Sundiata akoli NJSP photo ID with my height reset from five feet nine inches to five feet five inches by a spiteful guard, took me to lockdown, cut off all and cut off all of my communications and contact between me and the outside world. No incoming or outgoing mail, telephone, telegram, email, visitor, money transfer, commissary, pen, paper, pencil, eraser, stamps, envelopes, towel, face cloth, or pillow. I told them I was from a medium security federal prison with no reason to be locked down. They ignored me. My attorney, Bruce Afron, was scheduled to visit me the next day. The cell was freezing cold. It was near sundown, so I called it a night and slept in my jumpsuit. Next day, I arose at sunup, stiff-necked, showered, and shook myself dry like a wet dog. I was given two-thirds of my normal medication dosage at FCI Cumberland, and when I asked why, I was given no reason but simply told no. I was four man escorted, escorted to health services for a hep C blood test and returned to my cell when I noticed they had written PC and no con, which means protected, protective custody and no contact, respectively, on my cell ID card. I told the escort sergeant that I was not PC had not requested PC, and would sign any release form necessary to remove myself from PC custody. You do not want to be on protective custody. He said no, nor would he summon a lieutenant or the captain to that effect, so I resigned to put my attorney on the matter when we met. A prisoner overheard my complaint to the sergeant and sent me a stub pencil with no eraser. I was most thankful and sat down to write what I could remember on my of my parole speech when the guard called out, that my attorney is here. Bruce's father had died the previous week, but he was holding up well. He shared some youthful photos of his father and family with me. I expressed my condolences, and we got off into the work. I told him they had lost my legal material, they have me on total lockdown, have a PC sign on my cell door, because that makes him vulnerable, uh, makes him vulnerable uh, to uh, the retaliation from other prisoners, and have cut my meds to two-thirds of the dosage I received at FCI Cumberland. Bruce said he'd look into it and that, meanwhile, we needed to focus on the parole hearing tomorrow. Hearing day. On June 8, 2016, I arose and told the guard I had no clean clothes and no safety razor, but I did have a parole hearing today, and I'm not going to the hearing unless I get a shower, razor, and clean clothes. He produced all three within the hour, except he substituted a barber for the razor. I noticed that my ankles had begun to swell from water accumulation due most likely to the change in my medication. I was escorted to take a TB x-ray and returned to put the finishing touches on my speech when the guard said, Parole board's calling. The hearing lasted about nine, from about 9 a.m. until about 4 or 5. It reached a new level of examination, cross-examination, and recrimination. Again, they questioned me primarily about the events on the turnpike and almost nothing about my many positive accomplishments. They also asked, are you angry that they broke Asada out of prison instead of you? My response was, no, I don't or wouldn't wish prison on anyone. At the end, they again denied parole and planned to go outside the guidelines to give me an extended, longer than usual, hit time until next parole hearing. Since Blacks, Others of color and the oppressed are the overwhelming majority of people in prison. We need to seriously think about creating a parole boards that mirror the people in prison. That is people parole boards. My remaining two weeks at NJSP were spent in almost complete isolation from the outside world. Except my last night there, the inmate legal association sent me a free permit for an outgoing legal mat letter. By then, my ankles were almost continually swollen from excess water buildup. I wrote my favorite attorney, and next morning they packed me out for the return trip to FCI Cumberland. All right, this is the last article from uh, the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper. This is from October of 2019. and really shows, again, who Sundiata Akoli is in terms of being a political prisoner and... um, a veteran Black Panther part for Self-Defense um, member, as well as a BLA member, and uh, the reason he is the imminent, an imminent freedom fighter. This is A Brief History of the New African Prison Struggle by Sundiata Akoli. This was written, though, in November of 1995. This article was first written at the request of the New African People's Organization. Its original title was The Rise and Development of the New African Liberation Struggle Behind the Walls. The New African Liberation Struggle Behind the Walls refers to the struggle of black prisoners behind the walls of U.S. penal institutions to gain liberation for ourselves, our people, and all oppressed people. We of the New African Independence Movement spell African with a K because African linguists originally used K to indicate the C sound in the English language. We use the term New African instead of Black to define ourselves as an African people who have been forcibly transplanted to a new land and formed into a new African nation in North America. But our struggle behind the walls did not begin in America. Part 1. Roots of the New African Prison Struggle. The 16th century through the Civil War. The African prison struggle began on the shores of Africa behind the walls of medieval pens that held captives for ships bound west into slavery. It continues today behind the walls of modern U.S. penitentiaries where all prisoners are held as legal slaves, a blatant violation of international law. The concept of prison ideology began to take form as far back as the reign of Louis XIV of France when the Benedictine monk Mabilian wrote that Penitents might be secluded in cells like those of Carthusian monks and there being employed in various sorts of labor. One, in, 19, in 1790, on April 5th, the Pennsylvania Quakers actualized this concept as the capstone of their 14 year struggle to reform Philadelphia's Walnut Street Jail. No longer would corporal punish be, punishment be administered. Henceforth, prisoners would be locked away in their cells with a Bible and forced to do penitence penitents in order to rehabilitate themselves two thus was born the penitentiary in 1850 approximately 6700 people were found in the nation's newly emerged prison system three almost none of the prisoners were black four blacks were more valuable economically outside the prison system because there were other means of racial control During this time, most new African, black men, women, and children were already imprisoned for life on plantations as chattel slaves. Accordingly, the African struggle behind the walls was carried on primarily behind the walls of slave quarters through conspiracies, revolts, insurrections, arson, sabotage, work slowdowns, poisoning of the slave master, self-maiming, and runaways. If slaves were recaptured, they continued to struggle behind the walls of the local jails, many of which were first built to hold captured runaways. Later, they were also used for local citizens. Shortly after 1850, the imprisonment rate increased, then remained very stable with a rate of between 75 and 125 prisoners per 100,000 population. Five, the African struggle continued primarily behind slave quarters' Walls down through the issuance of the Emancipation Proclamation. This was a declaration issued by President Lincoln on January 1, 1863, during the height of the Civil War. It declared the slaves free only in those states still in rebellion and had little actual liberating effect on the slaves in question. Their slave masters, still engaged in war against the Union, simply ignored the declaration and continued to hold their slaves in bondage. Some slave masters kept the declaration secret after the war ended following Lee's surrender on April 9, 1865. As a result, news of the Emancipation Proclamation did not reach slaves in Texas until June 19, 1865. This date, called Juneteenth, is celebrated annually by new Africans in Texas and outlying states as Black Independence Day. Post Civil War to the 20th century, and we know even that has changed. Immediately after the Civil War and the end of slavery, vast numbers of black males were imprisoned for everything from not signing slave-like labor contracts with plantation owners to looking the wrong way at some white person. Six, or for, more, or for some similar petty crime, any transgression perceived by whites to be of a more serious nature was normally dealt with on the spot with a gun or a rope, provided the black was outnumbered and outarmed. Black-on-black crime was then, as now, considered to be petty crime by the U.S. justice system. But petty or not, upon arrest, most New Africans were given long, harsh sentences at hard labor. Within five years at the end of the Civil War, the black percentages of the prison population went from close to zero to 33%. Many of these prisoners were hired out to whites at less than slave wages. Overnight, prisons became the new slave quarters for many new Africans. Likewise, the African prison struggle changed from a struggle behind the walls of slave quarters to a struggle behind the walls of county workhouses, chain gang camps, and the plantations and factories that used prisoners as slave laborers. The 20th century through World War II. From 1910 through 1950, blacks made up 23 to 34 percent of the prisoners in the U.S. prison system. Most people, conditioned by the prison movies, the defiant ones, starring Sidney Poitier, a black, and Tony Curtis, a white, or I Escape from the Chain Gang, starring Paul Mooney, a white in an integrated chain gang, or Cool Hand Luke, starring Paul Newman, a white in a southern chain gang, erroneously assumed that earlier U.S. prison populations were basically integrated. This is not so. The U.S. was a segregated society prior to 1950, including the prisons, even the northern ones. Most New African prisoners were sent to county workhouses, black chain gangs, and obscure Negro prisons. Thus, the early populations of the more well-known or mainline state and federal prisons, such as Attica, Sing Sing, Alcatraz, and Atlanta, were predominantly white and male. Whenever new Africans were sent to these mainline prisons, they found themselves grossly outnumbered, relegated to the back of the lines, to separate lines, or to no lines at all. They were often denied outright what meager amenities existed within the prisons. Racism was rampant. New Africans experienced racist suppression by both white prisoners and guards. All of the guards were white. There were no black guards or prison officials at that time. The African prisoners continued to struggle behind the walls of these segregated county workhouses, chain gang camps, and state and federal prisons, yet prison conditions for them remained much the same through World War II. Inside conditions accurately reflected conditions of the larger society outside the walls, except by then, the state's electric chair had mainly supplanted the lynch mob's rope. Post-World War II to the Civil Rights Era Things began to change in the wake of World War II. Four factors flowing together ushered in these changes. They were the ghetto population explosion, the drug influx, the emergence of independent African nations, and the civil rights movement. The ghetto population explosion. Plentiful jobs during the war, coupled with a severe shortage of white workers, caused U.S. war industries to hire new Africans in droves. Southern New Africans poured north to fill the the unheard-of job opportunities and the already crowded ghetto populations mushroomed. Drug influx. New African soldiers fought during the war to preserve European democracies. They returned home eager to f- join the fight to make segregated America democratic too. Um, one thing that I am going to say here, because I this is so imp- important to me, that this the the, the fact, the stat, statistic that nine hundred thousand returning black veterans from world war ii were denied the benefits of the gi bill okay but the u.s had witness marcus garvey organized similar sentiments following world war one into one of the greatest black movements in the western hemisphere this time the u.s was more prepared to contain the new and expected new african assertives their weapon was king heroin. The U.S. employed the services of the Mafia during World War II to gather intelligence in Italy to defeat fascist Mussolini. Before World War II, Mussolini embarked on a major campaign against the Mafia, which enraged the group's leaders, reports the New York Times in 1985. fascism was a big Mafia, uh, uh, so it couldn't afford another Mafia to exist. (laughs) Mussolini's activities turned Mafioso into vigorous anti-fascists, and the American government cooperated with the Mafia, both in the U.S. and in Sicily. In the eyes of many Sicilians, the U.S. helped restore the Mafia's lost power. The Americans had to win the war, so they couldn't pay much attention to these things. They thought the Mafia could help them, and perhaps they did, said Leonard um, Shastia, perhaps the best-known living Sicilian novelist and student of the Mafia. During World War II, the Office of Strategic Services OSS, the forerunner of the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, helped to commute Lucky Luciano's sentence in federal prison and arrange for his repatriation to Sicily. Lu- Luciano, was among the top dons in the mafia syndicate and a leading organizer of prostitution and drug trafficking. The OSS knew that Luciano had excellent ties to the Sicilian mafia and wanted the support of the organization for the Allied landing in Sicily in 1943. When Luciano left the US numerous politicians, And Mafia Dons were together at the Brooklyn docks to wave him goodbye in what was the first of many occasions that the international drug dealers were recruited by the U.S. government to advance its foreign policy interests. After the war, in return for services rendered, the U.S. looked the other way as the Mafia flooded the major U.S. ghettos with heroin. Within six years after World War II, due to the Mafia's marketing strategy, over 100,000 people were addicts, many of them black. Boy, I didn't realize that. The emergence of independent African nations. Africans from Africa, having fought to save European independence, returned to the African continent and began fighting for the independence of their own colonized nations. Rather than fight losing African colonial wars, most European nations opted to grant phased independence to their African colonies. The U.S. now faced the prospect of thousands of African diplomatic personnel, their staff and families coming to the U.N. and wandering into a minefield of incidents, particularly on state visits to the rigidly segregated D.C. capital. That alone could push each newly emerging independent African nation into the socialist column. To counteract this possibility, the U.S. decided to desegregate As a result, on May 17, 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court declared school segregation illegal. In its landmark Brown v. Board of Education case, which heralded the beginning of the end of official segregation in U.S., the Supreme Court had made fully aware of the relations between America's domestic policies and her foreign policy interest by the federal government's amicus curiae, the brief which read, It is in the context of the present world struggle between freedom and tyranny that the problem of racial discrimination must be viewed, for discrimination against minority groups in the U.S. has an adverse effect upon our relations with other countries. Racial discrimination furnishes grist for the communist propaganda mills, and it raises doubts, even among friendly nations, as to the intensity of our devotion to the democratic faith." Malcolm X provides similar insight into the reasoning behind the U.S. decision to desegregate. During his February 16, 1965 speech at Rochester, New York's Corn Hill Methodist Church, he said, "...from 1954 to 1964 can easily be looked upon as the era of the emerging African state, and as the African state emerged... What effect did it have on the black American? When he saw the black man on the African continent taking a stand, it made him become filled with the desire to also take a stand. Just as the U.S. had to change their approach with the people on the African continent, they also began to change their approach with our people on this continent. As they used tokenism on the African continent, they began to do the same thing with us here in the States tokenism. Every move they made was a token move. They came up with a Supreme Court desegregation decision that they haven't put into practice yet, not even in Rochester, much less in Mississippi. And of course, there was applause. As is often the case, we have run out of time. We will read the rest of that incredible article um, next week. We are going to leave you with the words of Sundiata Koli, um, commenting on what the poem Affirmation by Asada Sukur means to him.
1: What Affirmation Means to Me by Sundiata Koli. Affirmation is a political, artistic masterpiece that continues to inspire and astound me at every turn. I think it ranks among the greatest liberation classics as Claude McKay's If We Must Die Che Guevara's commentary on love and struggle, Austin Davis's eulogy for Malcolm X, and Marcus Mosai Garvey's If I Die in Atlanta. The latter narratives were composed by men, most of whom were speaking on matters related to death. Asalta is woman. Her affirmation took a different path. Its focus is living and beliefs Thus, affirmation's opening line is, I believe in living, followed by a litany of activities that inspire to believe in better days ahead, to believe in the sun, wind, and water, the sustainers of life belonging to everyone, young and old alike, to believe in the dialectics of seeds growing into trees and the union of opposites such as tears of pain turning into the joy of rains that bring a bountiful harvest, again completing the eternal circle of life. Affirmation's next stanza repeats its theme. I believe in life, only this time openly conflated with death in the paraphrased land, and I've seen the death parade march through the earth, devouring mud bodies by the multitudes. I have seen a brought out the sun in needless murder of many thousands. And I've seen the can the humble, the upright, hoodwinked by the band of nonviolence. A father has walked cut glass, eaten crow, and been locked, cuffed, gagged, and tagged as a terrorist, all of loving oppressed people fighting for our freedom and proclaiming a simple truth, that a wall is just a wall. And last, affirmation is ever mindful to me to keep faith in living, in birth, creating life, in the magic of love, the wisdom and truth, and the ability of struggle to bring a lost ship home through the storm. I thank you. This is Sundi Aracoli, a caller from uh, FCI Cumberland, Maryland.